First John chapter 5, verse 13. You can start making your way in your Bible there. As we've been working through this last chapter and really through this whole book, John has been building a case for the divinity of Christ. That Jesus really is God's Son. Last week we looked at some verses where John really kind of called on some witnesses and they all agree. Jesus is God in the flesh. Come for us. Since that's true, nobody can say, well, I believe in God, but I don't, I don't need Jesus. Nobody can say that. John equated it to perjury. That would be accusing God of perjury, that God is lying and God doesn't lie. So John really simplified it at the end of the text that we looked at last week in verse 12. If you have the son, what do you have? You've got life. If you don't have the son, what do you not have? You don't have life. Christ's life gives you life. And if you believe the truth about Jesus being God's son, then you can know that you have eternal life. You don't have to hope that when you die, God's going to be merciful on you. He has been in giving you Christ. And so belief would say that we have eternal life. And today John kind of starts to wrap up his, his letter here with even more of a concerted effort to help his readers understand that they can know that they have this confidence. They can know that they have eternal life, that they are truly God's child, that they are saved. And according to John, it takes knowledge, understanding. So as we read verses 13 through 19, just listen for how many times John uses the word know in those verses. Chapter 5, verses 13 through 19. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Let's pray and then we'll talk about the word to know a little bit more. Father, we want to know you better. John is encouraging us towards that today in this text. And so I pray that your spirit would be the great teacher that he is. And he would help us to understand some of the really challenging things about this text. And change our lives with it. Change the way that we address one another and, and fellowship with one another. Lord, have your way in our hearts in this place today in Christ's name. Amen. Anybody count how many times the word no shows up in those verses? Most obviously five times. There's actually a sixth one because uh, in verse 16, the word see 
or perceive is actually the same word as the word know. So really six times in this, these short verses, John uses the word to know. And so his reasoning is clear here. He ties knowing that you have eternal life to know that you may know, knowing you have eternal life to believing in the name of the Son of God, to believing that Jesus is really God's Son. He ties those things together here. This helps us understand that confidence of eternal life comes from believing in Jesus. Do you believe? That's how you have confidence. Stop for a moment with me and just think about why John would even say this. Why did he even go down this train of thought? I don't think John would have needed to say this if he was writing to a bunch of people in his audience that were full of confident, mature, unwavering Christians. He wouldn't have needed to reassure them of eternal life if they had no trouble believing in Jesus or if they had no doubts about his divinity or if they were sure he was who he was saying that he was. So John, I think, is writing here to people in churches who genuinely believed but still had doubts. Are there times in a believer's life where faith and doubt are both present? Think about that. I think that there is. I think that those things can coexist. Can you identify with that? I bet if you were serious about your evaluation of your own walk with the Lord, you'd recognize moments in your life where you believed, but there was still some question about some things. This is not abnormal to us. Faith can seem shaky sometimes. There are seasons of life where it seems more difficult to believe God and his word than in other seasons. Are there times when genuine believers doubt? Yeah, there are. I don't think doubt is the unpardonable, unforgivable sin. God's shoulders are big enough for every one of our questions. We shouldn't hesitate to take our doubts to God. But we should hold them up to the light of Scripture, and we shouldn't exalt doubt. Here's what I mean. It might seem strange, but this happens, especially in our Christian culture, more than we might think, maybe more than ever before. For some, and boy, if you read Christian articles online, do yourself a favor and don't read the comment section. But if you do, you're going to see this. It's almost like this badge of honor that people who call themselves Christians put on where they just question everything. Is that really true? Everything is kind of shaded with doubt to some degree. Can we really believe that God said that? Or is that just, you know, a modern interpretation of it? Is that part of the Bible still really relevant today? Haven't we progressed enough to know better? But these are the things that you're hearing and some people are saying. And it eventually will lead to the question, can you really know that you're saved? Because doubt has trickled in to so many avenues that inevitably will get to that point. Some people then act as if questioning everything makes a person a real deep thinker. Like, oh, they really question things. So they're, you know, they're really spiritual. They're really woke. They're really wise. Doubt doesn't automatically make a person wise. 
it might not be their intent, but these kind of people live as though there's no solid ground. There's no absolute truth on which to build their lives. And in living this way, they then lack the confidence to take God at his word and live lives that requires faith. The fact that we wrestle with fear and doubt, friends, it doesn't make us a better or worse person. But where you choose to stand when those things come your way, that reveals your heart. Russell Carter captures this idea in his hymn, Standing on the Promises. You're familiar with that. Listen to the second verse. Standing on the promises that cannot fail, when the howling storms of doubt and fear assail, by the living word of God I shall prevail. Standing on the promises of God. When doubt and fear assail and attack, where do you turn? Do you turn to the philosophies of men? To human understanding and reasoning? To our culture's explanation? Or do we turn to the living word of God? That reveals our heart. If you want to be sure, if you want to have confidence, it's never going to be found in yourself. It can't be found in you. It will only ever be found by looking outside of yourself to the finished work of Christ. And that's what John has been getting at in First John so far, in these five chapters. Never once has he told you to look inside yourself for confidence of salvation. Not once. He's always pointed us outward to what Jesus has done, to who Jesus is, his work, his worth, not our own. If your confidence hinges on something inside yourself or on your performance, you will always doubt. You will. But if it rests on Jesus Christ, if your confidence and assurance is put on him, then you can be assured that your faith has found the only solid resting place. To quote another old hymn this morning, My faith has found a resting place, not in device or creed. I trust the ever-living one, his wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument, I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. That's the resting place for our souls. That's the source of assurance for the believer. Those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God they practice obedience and love others, they can be assured that they have eternal life. Did you catch those three things? Those who believe, those who practice, and those who love can be assured that they have eternal life. This is what John is telling us. He's writing this letter this way, with this purpose in mind, so that we can know this to be true. We can have confidence that these things are right. Just think about what he said so far. He insisted on Jesus' humanity. Right at the beginning of his letter, he talks about how they've seen him, they've, they've touched him, they've heard him. He was a real person. But now he's also been stressing Jesus' divinity. He talked about the water, the blood, the spirit, the testimony of God himself. All of these things attest to it. So I don't think John is exaggerating or hyperbolizing when he says, those of you who believe in Jesus, God's beloved son, you can know that you have eternal life. You can be confident. The real question then becomes, do you believe? Do you believe? If you don't, you don't have the son and you don't have life. 
But if you do believe in an obvious and an ongoing way, then you can be confident that you not only have eternal life, as John has just been saying, but you also have a heavenly father who hears you now. This is what he gets into in verses 14 and 15. Read those with me. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we will have the requests that we have asked of him. Believers are confident of eternal life in Christ. We know that that makes us children of God. Well, knowing who our father is, we also have confidence that he hears our prayers when we pray according to his will. That's not a small little section that we can just disregard. That ties it all together. How do we pray? We talked about this back in the first Sunday of November when we looked at chapter 3, verses 19 through 24. John there says that believers will have whatever they ask of God. And so that could send your mind in any number of directions. Well, what does he mean, whatever I ask? Could that mean fill in the blank. God's not a genie to grant your wishes. That's not what that verse is saying. What believers who are doing what he commands and who are doing what pleases him, what are they going to ask for? They're not going to care about those things of the world. They're going to ask for God to do things according to his will. That's the kind of prayer that God hears. That's the kind of prayer that God answers. Believers, we need to seek and learn God's will in order to pray properly. The better you know God, the more effective your prayer life becomes. Because you're going to pray according to his mindset. You're going to pray according to his will and not your own. A couple of simple evaluation questions for you this morning. You don't have to respond visibly, just in your mind. Number one, do you believe that God knows more than you? I hear some laughter. You could probably tell where I'm going with this. Do you believe that God knows what you or your loved one or friend who you're praying for, do you believe that God knows what they need better than you do? Between the two, who knows best, you or God? Okay, I hope that's an obvious answer to that question. And I, I kind of almost feel a little bit silly because you all are understanding this with me, you're saying, oh, of course, God knows better. Then why don't we live like it? Why don't we pray like that? When life doesn't go our way and God's will is obviously different than the one that we had in mind for ourselves, I feel like we waste an awful lot of time praying against God's will, asking him to change his will when it's pretty obvious right there. Now, maybe I'm just speaking for myself this morning and you're not falling into this as well. I've heard it said this way. God's will will be different from what you want, but it will always be better than what you want. I've heard this said too. God gives us what we would want him to give us if we were as wise as him. So if you're praying in accordance with what pleases God, and as found in teachings of scripture, then you are praying according to his will. And John says you can be confident that he hears you. He's listening. You're not just saying words into the void, into the air. God hears your prayers and God acts 
it seems like now in verses 16 through 19 that John kind of almost introduces this new thought. But I want to suggest that it actually continues John's progression of thought perfectly. Think about the three major pillars that John has been sharing with us so far. Believe God, love God, love others. And so I don't think John's train of thought here has changed at all. I would say that verses 16 through 19, as difficult as they are, as we'll see in just a moment, they're just a living out of everything that John has said before this. They're how we live this. Read verse 16 with me. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. Now, admittedly, this is not an easy verse to translate, to interpret. In fact, in all of Scripture, this is one of, most, one of the most difficult. So, but let me give some kind of preliminary observations just real quickly. I hope you'll see these along with me. First, according to this verse, we are supposed to be looking into and evaluating the actions and lives of other professing believers. This is not being judgmental. That's the word that's thrown around today. This is not being judgmental. As fellow children of God, we are responsible to one another. I would even say that we are accountable to one another. There's this tendency, and I feel it in myself even, but you know it. There's a tendency to ignore sin when we see it in somebody else's life. It's super easy to do it in our own life because we can hide it easier. But even when we see it in someone else's life, it's easy just to ignore it, to overlook it, to pass over it. I think the thought process is the same. You can identify with this. Well, who am I to say something to them? I'm a sinner too. I've got my own problems. It would be hypocritical for me to say something. I should just not get involved and I should just let them do their thing. That's our thought process. You've thought that before. But my question is this. Why would John say this? Under the inspiration of the Spirit, why would God, why would John write this if we're not supposed to get involved in other people's lives? Why? More importantly, why would God give us Matthew 18 or 1 Corinthians 5 if we're just supposed to ignore sin? Take this a little further. Why did Jesus allow himself to be beaten and killed and nailed to a cross if sin can be glossed over? Why? Sin can't be ignored, brothers and sisters, because souls are at stake. People we love, we have to get involved. Now, there's a right way to do this, and there's lots of wrong ways to do this. We'll talk more about that in just a moment, but John helps us understand this. And this kind of leads me to my next observation, number two. If when we come to see or to know that a brother or sister is committing sin, the first thing we should do is not go talk to our best friend about it. It's not even to go talk to our spouse about it. It's not to go talk about it in hushed tones at the local diner. It might not even be to go talk to the elders about it. What does John say? John says the first thing that we're supposed to do when we see a professing believer in sin is to pray for them. Is that what we do? I hope so. I hope it begins to be what we do. We're supposed to go straight to God on their behalf of the people that we care about. 
We go straight to God. He said, John says, he shall ask. That means the believer, when they see their friend in sin, will ask of God. I hope that that's our first inclination when we see that something not right is going on. We should pray for them. So here's John's train of thought. Those who believe have eternal life. Those who have eternal life have confidence that God hears their prayers. And those who know that God hears their prayers, they intercede for others on their behalf. That's the train of thought that John is getting at here. The confidence that we have through Jesus Christ should translate into intercessory prayer for one another. Notice how John uses the word brother at the beginning of verse 16. He uses it to describe the person a believer should be praying for. There's a commonality between you and that person. There's common ground. This is the reason that even though we're sinners, this is the reason why we can hold each other accountable because the Spirit of God lives in us. That's who or what we appeal to when we talk to them about their sin. We appeal to the Spirit of God in them. John mentions then two types of sin in verse 16. This is where it gets interesting. He says that there's a sin that does not lead to death. There's a sin that does lead to death. Let me give a couple thoughts. When John uses the word death here, I think he's referring to eternal death. I read a number of commentaries this week, and it seemed like it was almost split 50-50. Half of them say, well, this is talking about physical death. The other half say, this is talking about eternal death, spiritual death. I'll tell you why I believe that it's referring to eternal death as we go. I think John does clarify this in verse 17. You can look forward at that. He says, all wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. You know what the Apostle Paul teaches about sin, right? The Romans Road spells it out, if you're familiar with that. He teaches that sin brings death. Adam, who represented all people in the garden, brought sin into the world, and now it extends to all people everywhere because sin is our nature. Now notice I did not say sin is in our nature. Sin is our nature. That's all we know now. So whether you've committed 10,000 sins or whether you've committed one sin, you deserve death by God's standards. Sin brings death. For the Christian, it's no longer the case. Sin now does not lead to eternal death because Christ has tasted death and overcome it for them. Christians taste physical death, but never spiritual, eternal death anymore. And so that's why I think John is referring to eternal death here, not physical death, not the physical body. Second observation in this section, John says that there is a sin that does lead to eternal death. And it's, it's not totally clear what John's referring to here, but I think we would agree that the best practice when we run into something that's confusing and not easily seen, that we use the verses surrounding it to help us understand it better. So let's do that. What has John been saying? John has been insisting that Jesus is the literal and physical son of God. He really is God in the flesh. He's not a ghost. He's not an apparition. He wasn't God from his baptism to his death, and then the Spirit left him. He's fully God, and he's fully man. He is the Word made flesh who dwelt among us, John says in his gospel. 
So John's been driving that point home to his readers. So it would seem to me that sin that relates to eternal death would involve the refusal to believe that truth, that Jesus really is God the Son, that Jesus really did come to save. This was the sin of the false teachers that John was really writing against. They opposed the witness of God concerning the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. So to believe and to live that way is contrary to the leading and revelation of the Holy Spirit. Again, you're charging God with perjury and saying that he is a liar. These people commit themselves to willfully rejecting the biblical teaching about Jesus and eternal spiritual death is their destiny. But John says he doesn't even suggest praying for those whose sin leads to death. Again, this is, this is pretty confusing. But I think here the issue lies with the certainty of prayer. Let me explain. John said that when you pray for a brother or sister who's in sin, verse 16 says that God will give them life. So John is pretty confident here. When we intercede for other Christians, John is certain that God will give them life. There's a certainty with that kind of prayer in that kind of situation. But when a person repeatedly and willfully sins or denies the divinity and humanity of Jesus Christ, there's no guarantee that they're going to find life in Christ with that continued attitude. Notice, though, that John doesn't forbid people from praying for this person, but he just gives no certainty that they will find life in that unregenerate state. On the flip side, he says, if you pray for someone who has the Spirit of God in them, on their behalf, God will give them life. The certainty of prayer is the issue here. In my study time, I like to look at contemporary people's views of this, other passages of Scripture, but then also guys who lived hundreds of years ago. What did they say? What did they think about these verses? Let me just read what somebody from the 1700s said about this. His name is John Gill. How should another man know that a brother's sin is not unto death when it is of the same nature and kind with another man's? It's known by this. He does not continue in it. He does not live in the constant commission of it. His life is not a course of iniquity. That sin he sins is not a governing one in his life. Though he falls into it, he rises up out of it through divine grace. And he abides not in it. He has a sense of it and is sorry for it. And after a godly sort, loathes it and is ashamed of it. He confesses it and he forsakes it. How do you respond when a brother or sister comes and talks to you about sin? Do you rise up out of it, like John Gill says, by divine grace? Do you confess it? Do you repent of it? Do you forsake it? That proves, that shows evidence of the power and presence of the Spirit of God in your life. Or, when you're confronted about sin, do you make a practice of burying it, of burrowing yourself even further and deeper into the clutches of sin. The refusal to repent or even acknowledge sin could be evidence that the Spirit of God does not live in that person's life at all. So how you respond tells you whether it is a sin that leads to death or not, because it reveals whether the Spirit is within you or not, because that Spirit convicts us. That Spirit restores us. His Spirit guides us back in line with his authority, with his will. Now look at verse 18 with me. This verse explains 
that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. So this helps us understand the verses before it. Born again people do not continue to practice sin, especially when a brother or sister talks with them and intercedes for them in prayer. They won't continue in it. They can't continue in it. Instead of continuing in the practice of sin, they're going to be given new life by God. That's what John has been assured of. Think back to chapter 1, verse 10. In fact, if you want to just kind of flip back there a couple of pages, what is, look what John warns about sin in chapter 1, verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So on one hand, John doesn't want us to misunderstand and think that Christians don't sin anymore. He's not teaching perfectionism, for sure. But on the other hand, look at chapter 3, verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. So, so John is setting up some parameters here for what sin in the Christian's life looks like. They don't make a practice of it, but they still fall into it. That's John's message, I think, in verse 18 too. Chapter 5, everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. You can be born of God and be confident of it, but your life is not marked by patterns of sin any longer. John doesn't want us to think that the practice of sin is acceptable to Christians. It's not. And if we see a brother or sister where that identifies their life, patterns of sin, then we should intercede for them. We are called to intercede for them both in prayer and in person. The end of verse 18 says, He who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. John says that the Christian who doesn't make a practice of sinning is therefore protected by God. The enemy, the evil one, Satan, cannot touch him. John uses similar language in these verses, but I think that we need to make the distinction here when he says that who was born of God, he who was born of God, this is talking about Jesus Christ. I think the Holman Christian Standard actually capitalizes the word one, the one who is born of God keeps him. That's, that's good. The one refers to Jesus. It's Christ who keeps us, brothers and sisters. It's not you, and it's a good thing too. I love how Daniel Aiken puts this in his commentary. He says, The devil does not touch the Christian and harm him in any ultimate sense because he is protected by his, the Son of God. And because the Son keeps the believer safe, he cannot persist in or continually practice sin. It's contrary to his nature. It's contrary to his protector. Let's finish with verse 19. John says, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. If there was any doubt of the nature of things, of the status of things now, John makes it clear here. He says that the evil one has some amount of power right now. I don't know that anyone would deny that at this point. There is some power. We live, the whole world lies in the power of the evil ones. But believer, Christian, you can be confident that you are of God. You don't belong to the evil one. You can be confident that you are of God because he is your ultimate protector, not yourself. This life is a battle, but it's not a battle against one another. Paul makes this clear in Ephesians chapter 6. He says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but what? Against authorities, 
against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is a war. But the person sitting next to you, even the person that angers you and disagrees with you out in the world, they are not your enemy. The evil one is. As children of God, we can be confident in our protector because he is greater than he who is in this world. Our father is greater than he who is in this world. We are his and he will protect us. As we recap this morning, it's possible to have eternal life and to still doubt. But I don't think John wants us to doubt. I think he wants us to have confidence and assurance through faith and practice. When you believe and you practice the things that John has been teaching us, you can be sure that you have eternal life. You can take a step back from your life and say, what is my life marked by? You can ask a good friend or a spouse and say, what is my life marked by? Is it marked by obedience or is it marked by patterns of sin? We can have assurance through faith and practice. Christians specifically this morning, your confidence in God does not come from yourself. And it can't come from your feelings. And you know why. Your feelings change. Your emotions vary from day to day. In fact, I'd argue that our emotions and our feelings can even deceive us at times. They are not the standard by which we believe in God or why we, how we believe in our assurance from God. Confidence can only come from the real and risen Son of God. And when our faith finds its resting place in Him, we can be assured of what God has given us. No one else is worth believing. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, as, as we consider the things that we've heard today, some of them very difficult Lord, to think about interceding for our brothers and sisters who we know are in sin is, is a heavy weight. And yet, Lord, it's one that if we truly love one another, we will bear. But Lord, it's not because we're so good. It's not because we have all the answers. It's simply because you do. And we want to see them walking with you. We want to be walking with you ourselves. And so, Lord, I... My hope for our church today, my hope for myself, Lord, is that we would believe you enough to do this hard work, to intercede for our brothers and our sisters, to allow others to intercede for us. Lord, I thank you that our confidence does not come from what we have done or from who we are. Lord, our confidence only comes from Christ, his person, his work. Thank you that we don't have to walk through life exalting doubt, wondering if what we have is real or true. You give us assurance of it by your grace, Lord. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.